Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you all today. I know that I led last week's service at Thoroton, but today is the first post-holiday Sunday preach for me. Annie, of course, um, shared God's word, word, word with us last week. So it feels as though um, today I'm starting to get properly back into the swing of things after a couple of weeks away from all things church. And what a way to start back as well. Not just the uh, after-service dash to the TCC to watch the Lionesses, um, but a real corker of a gospel reading that the lectionary has given us this week. Scripture that deeply challenges us, that requires us to look really closely to try to understand what's going on here. These verses have been referred to by some theological commentators as perhaps even the most difficult to unpick and interpret in the whole of the Gospels. So let's dive in and see what all the fuss is about. Anytime we approach God's Word, it's important to understand the context to the passage that we're wrestling with, what comes before, what comes after, the social, historical religious context um, in which it's set. But on this occasion, it's absolutely central to our attempts to understand this interaction between Jesus and this Canaanite woman, or uh, Syrophoenician woman, as she's called in the other gospel account of this incident in Mark chapter 7. Jesus, I think it's probably fair to say, would have been in need of his own personal summer break. If we look back to the immediately preceding chapter, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 14, he's just fed the 5,000, he's just walked on water, he's been engaged in some very challenging discussions with the Pharisees, and he's been having to come to terms as well with the brutal murder of his cousin John the Baptist by Herod. Jesus is tired. So he decides to go to the biblical equivalent of a mini-break to get away for a while from all the people of Israel who've been following him, waiting for his next teaching, waiting for his next healing. He goes to the north of the Jewish region of Galilee in which uh, he's been conducting his ministry and he goes um, to uh, what's modern-day South Lebanon, around the large city ports of Sidon and Tyre. This part of the Near East in that time was populated by the Canaanites, or Syrophoenicians, uh, according to Mark, um, different tribal names, who, if you cast your name back to the Old Testament times of Moses and Joshua and their like, uh, these Canaanites were exactly the people um, to whom um, God, with whom um, God had forbidden uh, his people to marry, or really to have any sort of relations at all. Um, the Israelites were to drive them out of the promised land and to have no contact with them, lest they be tempted to turn away from the one true God to the Canaanites' multiple deities. So, in G uh, Jesus is banking on anonymity as he withdraws to this region, wanting space, wanting quiet, to reflect, to spend time with his heavenly Father. But just as he's about to relax, a voice of pain 
crying out in the distance, hauls him back into the world of ministry. Lord, son of David, it says, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. The dialogue that plays out next, primarily between the Canaanite woman and Jesus, but also initially with some of the disciples who've accompanied him to the region, has been responsible for some of the most controversial theological thought about Jesus over recent years. On the face of it, it looks perfectly possible from what the pair say to one another that Jesus insults the woman through invoking a derogatory racial stereotype and that she, through the wit of her response, is able to make him not only see things differently but change his mind as a consequence. And then, rather than driving her away, Jesus chooses to grant the woman's request and heals her daughter. This, at least, is the sequence that's understood by some uh, perhaps more progressive theologians, maybe especially those with a particular concern for the role and the status of women in the story of the people of God. But while such perspectives are often hugely valuable in our broader understanding of Scripture and of the nature of God and his relation to us. To subscribe to this sort of narrative in this particular case, I think, is really problematic. Firstly, the language that Jesus appears to use towards the Canaanite woman is simply inconsistent with the way that he behaves in all other situations when individuals in great distress similar to that faced by this woman, come to him seeking his mercy, seeking healing. And secondly, to take this position to its logical conclusion, um, would simply uh, be to question the divinity of Jesus. It's true that by coming to earth and being born of Mary, um, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, uh, he takes on human form. He becomes incarnate as God's revelation of himself to all of humanity. And in doing that, he becomes 100% human. But Jesus, whilst being 100% human, uniquely also continued to be 100% divine. So it can't, therefore, be the case, if we hold this really high view of Christ's divinity, it can't really be the case to say that Jesus initially got this encounter so terribly wrong and that the woman's quick-witted response caused him to see things differently, to realise, if you like, the error of his initial ways and embrace the correction in his worldview by affirming the woman and healing her daughter. So then, if we discount that interpretation. What is going on? When the woman's uh, cry for help is first heard in the distance, Jesus's initial response, Matthew tells us, is silence. In Mark's account of this incident, he actually says uh, that Jesus wanted to keep the fact that he was in the vicinity of Tyre a secret. 
the woman is in fact encouraged to leave not by Jesus, but by the disciples, true to form in many ways. There are plenty of other occasions in all four Gospels where they are implicitly, <laughs> or indeed, that's the right mark, or, or, or indeed explicitly, um, by Jesus himself criticised for their lack of understanding or complete misreading of situations. Jesus' reply, in all honesty, is tricky to interpret. But the important thing to notice is that it's directed initially towards the disciples and not to the woman. It's very possible that she can't hear what Jesus is saying to them at this stage. So whilst if Jesus were to be saying to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, those are his words, it will be a direct rebuttal of her plea to him for help for her desperately ill daughter. If it's said only to and heard only by the disciples, however, it's a statement of what Jesus was sent by his heavenly Father to do, to be the Messiah, to be the saviour of God's chosen people Israel. It's only from that initial role, as the people of Israel themselves have the task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and bringing people, both Jew and Gentile, back to the Lord. It's only then that the good news of Jesus Christ reaches out to all. Which brings us to apparently the trickiest part of the encounter of all. The woman came and knelt before him, Matthew writes. Lord, help me, she said. He replies, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. If we take this at face value, it looks as though Jesus is being deeply insulting to the woman. He appears to be calling her a dog. How Jews at that time in general would have disparagingly referred to the Canaanites, whom they shunned. We know from other historical sources that this was the sort of language they used. And he would have been telling her that she has no right to ask for the healing, the bread, uh, in her words, that she seeks for her daughter. That's apparently, if we take the face value interpretation, reserved only for God's people his children, in Jesus' word, Israel. But I think tone is everything here. I'm sure all of us at some point in our lives have received a letter or maybe um, in, uh, in, in these days more likely perhaps an email in which the tone of voice that we're applying to what we receive is completely different to the sender's intentions, and it has uh, absolutely unforeseen uh, and unfortunate consequences. And I think that is what is going on here. I think that Jesus, given all that we know of him from the rest of the Gospels, from the way in which he does respond to the woman, commending her, healing ultimately her daughter, he's saying this, these words that apparently at face value are really offensive. He's saying them with a very heavy dose of irony. 
He's uh, maybe arching his eyebrow as he does it. I'll try and get the inflection right. He's saying something like, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He's, he's, he's almost um, uh, mimicking what, um, what some of the, uh, the rest of the people of Israel, people very much unlike him, would have said, but not saying what they offensively would have been saying. And the woman, in her response to him, does so in kind, gently mocking herself as she does so. She engages in his tone. Yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Not face value at all, as some commentators seem to have interpreted it. Even I, she's saying, a Canaanite woman as well as the Jews, even we can receive blessing from you. The two of them play out this ironic dance together, which is a distraction really, has been taken as a, as a distraction by so many commentators from what really matters. Jesus's final words. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter, Matthew says, was healed at that moment. Of necessity, it's taken us quite a while to get to this point, uh, given the complexity of the passage. Uh, but we've got to where uh, I, I really want to focus this morning. Let anyone even those in, on the face of it, the most utterly unpromising situations like that of the Canaanite woman. Anyone can come to Jesus. Anyone can show the humility and the faith and can have the conviction that Jesus can and will intervene and answer their prayer that this Canaanite woman displayed. She, of all people, is the only individual in the whole of Matthew's Gospel whose faith is described by Jesus as great. In contrast, uh, perhaps particularly to the terrified disciples when um, Jesus calms the storm in Matthew 8. O ye of little faith, he tells them. I'm very aware that this whole area of praying as um, the Canaanite woman did, praying for those who are ill, can be very hard for many. We pray for all, but not all can, in the way that we hope will come about, be healed as the Canaanite woman's daughter was. So often as well we have a limited understanding of what the healing for which we pray might look like in God's eyes. But in the words of John Wimber, the American pastor who had a particular anointing of healing ministry, when we prayed for no one, no one was healed. Now we pray for everyone and some are healed. It's a holy mystery who is and who isn't, but we do so nevertheless. But my encouragement to you all from 
this gospel passage this morning, not only in the area of prayer for healing, but in prayer for all areas of life, is to tap into the example of the faith of the Canaanite woman, who knew Jesus was the only hope left for her daughter. So she persisted and persisted and persisted through all the obstacles and the doubts and the fears and the social conventions that lay between her and him. She persisted in coming before Jesus on her knees and calling him her Lord and asking for his mercy on what mattered to her more than anything in the world. And I wonder what for each of you at this moment in time, having this faith and putting into practice getting on your knees, getting on my knees before God, literally or metaphorically, what that might look like. For me and for Claire at the moment, having this faith, having this trust in God that he's in control and he has his hand on what we are laying before him comes in the area of our youth ministry in the benefice, our new area of youth ministry. Neither Claire nor I has any real experience in this area at all, but we have a really strong sense that we believe is from God, that we should be starting up very small scale initially and learning, probably making some mistakes as well as we go along, with all the bumps in the roads that will come with doing that, we'll be starting up uh, a youth group for the children whom we know from Archbishop Cranmer Academy and our in-school Cranmer Connect services. The ones who uh, have left Year 6, have left Archbishop Cranmer this last summer and they've gone, or they're going on, to their new secondary schools. We are doing that in faith. We're doing that with a lot of prayer because, by golly, we need it with uh, our experience, our track records, um, and, um, and doing something new that we don't know how is it's going to work out. That is what uh, particularly having this faith looks like for us at the moment. So please do keep that in your prayers. But for each one of you here this morning, where might God be prompting you in your life at this time, like the Canaanite one, to place your faith and your trust in his hands for something or someone that he has especially placed on your heart? Be encouraged that as for her, even in the least promising of circumstances, Christ opens his arms and his heart for you. He listens and he acts when you put your faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your encounter with this Canaanite woman, for her courage and her faith. Help us to have this same faith in you and in your power to answer our prayers, as so extraordinarily you did hers. 
open our hearts to you, that we may hear to what and to where you are calling us, that your kingdom may come step by step here in our Cranmer Group villages. In your mighty and gracious name we pray. Amen.